tonight is a special uh, confession night, and uh, we're here to uh, make some abject confessions and uh, have other fun and games, which I'm sure that all of you will enjoy. That's <laughs> right, George. And uh, also, by way of a disclaimer, that uh, tonight's show has uh, sinister overtones, which uh, may prove to be offensive, if not downright disturbing to many of you deep-type thinkers out there. So we'd like to suggest you move down to the other spot on the dial where they're doing something a little more uh, in keeping with uh, your uh, heavy intellectual attainment. <laughs> you don't want to offend anybody here. Bring it up, big guy. There you go. Very good. Uh, listen, I'm uh, still, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of nervous because of what happened the other night. And uh, You mean you don't know what happened the other night? It was a bad scene. I I, uh, I was in this place. I was uh, traveling around, you know, and I was in this motel. And uh, I, I rarely turn on television sets when I'm traveling. To me, I like to get away from it, you know. I rarely turn them on in, uh, in motels. And I turned on this television set. And it was a, you know, typical motel-type TV set, you know, the kind with the iron case and... And the, the fuzzy picture and the whole bit it hummed and everything. And uh, it was a spooky scene anyway. Uh, it was rainy. And you have the sense that something's brooding out there. And it is. There's a big mountain that sort of hangs right over the town. And uh, mountains are scary in a curious way, especially to a person who's used to flatlands. Mountain is menacing. And... Uh, was kind of wet and cold and rainy, and it was nothing in the motel. It was a terrible motel. It was a kind, you know, with the, with the, uh, you know, the little special glasses they've got with the paper on it that says this glass has been reserved for you, especially. And you open it up, and there's a lipstick on the outside of it, and a cigar butt in the bottom of it, and you know the whole business. So, I turn on the TV set. It goes. You how those sets go, and the picture flops over about 28 times. Suddenly it stops. I'm looking at it. Oh, my God, no. Out of my ancient past. Count Dracula. I'm looking at Dracula. Now, I want to tell you something about this Dracula bit. I, I, uh, I was affected very heavily at the age of about nine by watching Dracula. Now, I watched Dracula. I had this Uncle Carl. He used to take me to pictures that were supposed to be only for adults. And uh, he'd take me in. He'd, I guess he'd explain to the guy at the, at the uh, box office that I was uh, pretty dumb and couldn't understand anything. It didn't make any difference anyway because I was a midget and wouldn't ever grow any bigger. And uh, I'd get in to see these things. And among other things that I saw at an early age that scarred me forever, I saw Dracula... And uh, what was this picture? Ecstasy. Did you ever hear of ecstasy? Well, it was an early I Am Curious Yellow, is what it was. And uh, that was enough to, you know, at that point I was heavily involved in reading uh, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, and all of a sudden run into ecstasy. That was another scene. But uh, nevertheless, I'm, I'm watching Dracula the other night. And it hit me, Dracula. I wonder how many people are hung on horror movies. Do you like a good horror movie? Some people don't, some do. It's like science fiction. 
I couldn't care less about science fiction movies. They all look exactly alike to me. There was a guy named Steve, and uh, there's a girl named Barbara, who was the daughter of the famous nuclear scientist and who is herself a biologist. And uh, she's there, all three of them, for some reason, there's just these three people who are standing between total devastation of the world and uh, nothing. You know, the monster's coming, and all the other people are just sort of standing around. They, they, you see them once in a while on the streets looking up uh, at the light in the sky. But Steve is doing something about it. I mean, anybody that buys this stuff would buy a lead brick, you know, painted gold. And so, uh, nevertheless, uh, I don't buy science fiction. But And, and I, I don't really, I can't honestly tell you that, I, that I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm ever scared by a, by a uh, horror movie. But horror movies, to me, have a peculiar fascination uh, because of, you know, the way they do things. Some, some movies can be, uh, have a, you know, one moment that's fantastically horrible. Like, uh, I saw a trilogy that was made here a few years ago in color. And uh, Boris Karloff was like the running character that ran through it. He introduced these things on the screen. You remember when they used to have uh, anthologies, like trilogies? Do you remember Somerset Maugham's Five, various uh, short stories done like little one-act plays? Well, Dracula uh, is one of the great classic horror figures of all time. And uh, this character exists, uh, you know, just a, when you say Dracula, everybody knows who Dracula is. Do you know, you know the guy that played Dracula, Bela Lugosi, the famous uh, Hungarian, I guess he was Hungarian or Romanian, but famous actor, that when he died a few years ago, he specified in his will that he be buried in the full insignia and regalia and the, the, uh, the cape of Count Dracula. And... Uh, <laughs> That's going to be fascinating for some anthropologist about 105,000 years from now when they dig that up. <laughs> sure, what the hell that is? And uh, he has this cross and all that business. And uh, and I, I, of course, at that point, uh, when I first saw Count Dracula, I uh, I was heavily influenced by, by that because we had a lot of bats in our neighborhood. Now, uh, a lot of people never see bats. A bat is a theory to most people. But if you live in a neighborhood where they actually have bats, I mean, flying around bats, you tend to think maybe there is something to this Dracula scene. In fact, when I was in the Amazon, you know, they have vampire bats there. Now, uh, every time you see Dracula, you, see, you know those bats that fly in and out of Dracula, the big vampire bats, big, huge things? Well, that bat is not really the, the, the vampire bat. The, the big ones that they show in these horror mysteries really are fruit bats. They don't do anything except eat peaches. <laughs> I mean, those big bats. They eat peaches, and they look horrible. Oh, they're bad news. The, the real vampire bat is about the size of a mouse or smaller, and they're, they're really deadly. In fact, in, in the Amazon, the, the vampire bat, uh, you had to sleep in a special kind of uh, mosquito netting and that to keep the bats out. And the way the vampire bat works in, in uh, the Amazon, in fact, they had the chickens. When I was with this tribe of headhunters, they keep the chickens in a special little teepee. It was like a little tiny A-frame made out of uh, logs that was especially built to keep bats out. And these guys would build these things up on little stilts, and the bats would supposedly stay away from the chickens. But, but, a, but a group of vampire bats can kill every chicken within miles, and all the kids, too. You know how they do it. You know how a vampire bat works. Don't you know how they work? 
Well, what happens is you're asleep. They always get you in your sleep. And uh, the, the bat comes sneaking up on you, and he bites you. He may just fly right over, and he'll bite like your ear or your nose or your toe, some exposed part. They generally go for your ear, your nose, your toe, primarily the tip of your nose, curiously enough, because of, uh, because of a lot of biological reasons. But anyway, he just goes nip like that. And as he does so, he makes these two little punctures, just like a little hole uh, in your skin, and as he does, he injects an anticoagulant in your nose, which means that the, the uh, blood isn't going to coagulate, and you start to bleed in your sleep, and it's very painless. The blood just runs down and dribbles all over the place, and you're just laying there bleeding to death, and all the other bats then show up. They about five million bats show up, and they gather around this pool of blood, and they drink the blood. And the next morning they find you, uh, and there you are, drained as, you know, you're drained as dry as a gourd. That's it. And old Charlie's been sucked dry. And, uh, <laughs> and it's an evil thought, but that's what, what, a, what a bat does. Now, uh, the other day, now the only reason I bring this up, you know, I'm, here I'm sitting in this motel, and on comes Count Dracula. Well, I thought about Dracula, see. You know, this was written by a woman. And I, I wonder whether there's any connection. Some of the great horror stories of all time were written by women. Women specialize in horror stories. If you ever read Shirley Jackman, Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, and uh, this this scene, uh, uh, what's her name, the uh, great Danish, Co yeah, Copenhagen, I believe, Isak uh, uh, Dinesen is another one. The gothic horror. Well, Dracula is a special case. And I kept thinking about Dracula. I think Bela Lugosi and Dracula. And do you know I discovered the other day, I'm sitting in a, in a bus station, and I've got this old newspaper. I'm looking at this thing, waiting for somebody. And I read that Count Dracula existed. He was not a myth. Count Dracula was real. Any of you have ever seen this terrible, uh, scary movie, uh, he was a real character. And uh, I read to you the bit, and I and I check it out. Osgood Carruthers wrote this. He's a writer, Los Angeles Times Service, and it's headed Count Dracula was for real, and it's Dateline Braslav, Romania. Yes, Virginia, there was a Dracula. You imagine this guy? There really was a Dracula, or a reasonable facsimile, and to the inhabitants of these brooding mountains of Transylvania. He was a good guy, a bit ruthless, but a good guy, who protected the forebears of present-day Romanians against the Turks, the Hungarians, and Germanic tribes. Incidentally, I had been in that part of the world. And I want to tell you this. You can understand how people... I think, I think literature springs out of, of the physical surroundings of people, even if they don't consciously write about the physical surroundings. If you've ever seen the mountains of that part of the world, it's a strange thing about them. They're, they're not high, craggy mountains of the kind like, say, the Rockies. They're kind of strange, rolling, wooded hills, mountains, and it's, the, the sky is gray a great deal of the time there for some reason or other. Every time I've seen it, it's gray, and there's great, great, fantastic uh, uh, forests there. And there is a curious, spooky, brooding quality in fact, I remember feeling that same feeling uh, was dr one night driving a car. Have you ever been in a place that in itself is spooky? 
uh, driving a car between Innsbruck and Munich over the uh, Tyrol there, the Alps. And I was in this little tiny car, a little German car, and driving through these little villages, and this is the heart of the Black Forest region, and driving along, and by God, I wasn't driving more than like 20 minutes, and I was, I was not only believing in elves and gnomes, I was seeing elves and gnomes. <laughs> it's scary. And then I had this, this, this insane moment when I'm driving. It's about midnight, see, and I'm, I'm approaching this little town, now, the woods were absolutely stygian black on both sides of me. And the mountains stretched up on both sides and went right to the world's ceiling, just up. And there was nothing but blackness, real blackness. And these, these uh, if you've ever seen the Black Forest, you know why they call them the Black Forest. It really is black. And I'm putting along in this little car, not a soul anywhere around me. It was in late fall. And the foliage had changed, and all the tourists were gone, and there was nothing except blackness, this one little road. And this car was driven by a Schick Shaver motor, roughly. It couldn't go anywhere. The little thing, was, it's about 5,000 miles to a gallon of gas, but that's because it didn't do anything. <laughs> and it, it hardly moved. I, flat out, flat out, I'd get maybe 17, 18 miles an hour. You know? And it had two little candles for its lights in the front. And I'm driving along, ice cold. Oh, is it cold in this car? No radio, nothing. The two little seats were like uh, made out of uh, uh, canvas slings. And I'm going through the black forest all by myself. And I, and I see nothing but blackness all around me. These two little yellow lights, which I have out in front of me, are lighting up the space of the road, maybe six or seven feet just ahead of me. That's it. Well, I'm coming into a town. Now, I only know there's a town there because I know it's on the map, and I also saw a sign in German that said I was approaching Mittenwald, which means middle of the forest. Mitten, middle of the forest. Mittenwald. This is speaking, lost in the woods. This is W-O-R, New York. Friends, we've been lost in the woods for years. Hey, that reminds me, almost uh, daily I get letters, you know, from people saying, when are you going to do your next uh, live college show? Well, that's going to be Friday. The first one of the season, we're going to get warmed up over there, you know. The first show of the season is going to be Friday afternoon, the 10th, uh, from 3 to 6. And, uh, well, actually, the big show is going to be the 10th, yeah. It's going to be at 8.30 p.m., got it? Now, see, this is all in one big hazerai here, so I have to start from the top. I'm going to be in Glassboro, New Jersey, Friday. Now, from 3 to 6, I'm going to be in the paperback nook Sounds a little bit uh, obscene. I'm going to be in the paperback nook, College Town Mall, Glassboro, New Jersey. And that's from 3 to 6. And I'll autograph books and, you know, do the whole shtick. And that night, I'm going to be at 8.30 p.m., Friday, September 10th, in Esby Gym, which is, uh, it's the, actually, it's the chief diamond of the great diadem of Glassboro State College's beautiful campus. I'm going to be at Glassboro State College, Glassboro, N.J., that's uh, Friday, September 10th at 8.30 in the gym. Tickets are on sale at the door. That's actually a student activity thing, you know. Feeling low, blue as can be. And I want to go back, want to go back to the man I used to be. Take me back, take me back. Back where I come from. I don't know where it's gone. Man, I used to be. 
Feeling sad, feeling sad It's a long, long way back home And I want to go back To the man I used to be I'm Johnny Cash. It's never too late to get back in shape. That's not saying it's easy, but I work at it. Even when I'm on the road, just a few minutes a day is worth ten years of living on the other end. Exercise makes your heart beat stronger. So if you want to get back to the man you used to be, but don't know how, write to the President's Council on Physical Fitness and Sports, Washington, D.C., 20202. They'll send you a free booklet. Yeah. And I'm drifting along, you know, on this road. I guess everybody in this time... You know, it's... it's uh, I don't know. I, 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 uh, I think that only man uh, is capable of that kind of fear. I don't think animals walking around ever look in the forest and see fear. I mean, you can't imagine a squirrel being afraid of the dark. And, uh, and yet, yet uh, there isn't a soul of us that doesn't somehow have a vague feeling of uneasiness, that out there in the darkness there's something. Well, I'm driving along this, this road, and when this moment happened, I, this this is a this is a moment I'll never forget, because I was kind of on edge. It was late, and I had gotten a late start from from uh, Innsbruck. Now Innsbruck, if you have a map, uh, you can take a look at it. Innsbruck lies just on the other side of the mountains from Munich, and uh, between Innsbruck and Munich rise these great uh, Alps, and there's a pass that goes between the two. And it, you drive literally through the mountains to get to Munich, which lies on the other side of the mountains, and it lies down on a kind of plain. And Innsbruck is a, a spooky kind of city anyway. It's a medieval city. It has arched uh, uh, walkways. You walk along a, a narrow cobblestone walk, and it has these arches. And, and during the, uh, I guess, during the uh, tourist season, it's a great place. You know, everybody digs it. But when in the off-season, it has a certain mysterious black uh, brooding quality. It's a strange place. And the people look at you with an odd look. I, w I remember going into this hotel, and it had this fantastic room. It's, a, it's like out of an old uh, uh, David Niven movie. This uh, old hotel with uh, this strange decor, great hanging chandeliers. And these waiters with black suits came around. And we're, we're not used to that kind of thing in America very often. And it's, just, it's, a, it's a very different kind of way of doing things. And all around me, seated at uh, respectable distances, were uh, sort of sinister-looking elderly ladies with dewlaps. Who, uh, dewlaps? Don't you know what a dewlap is? That's a jowl, in case you're interested. It's a hanging jowl. You don't know what a jowl is? How the hell did you get your job? <laughs> but uh, it's it, these women look like powdered basset hounds, sitting sitting uh, at at respectful distances, saying nothing to each other, and being served by waiters who apparently had been serving them for five hundred years. It had a certain timeless quality, and uh, there was silver uh, salvers and and trays, and they were pushing things around in little carts with with the uh, silver spoked wheels. And bringing out the strange-looking bottles of wine with dust on them, and up on the stage were these three elderly men playing violins. One guy was well, actually, they weren't all three playing. Two of them were playing violins, 
and the middle one was playing what looked like a clarinet. And uh, it was this, this Europa, middle Europa world. And they're playing along, they're playing waltzes and things. And it was a huge place, roughly the size of Lincoln Center. And there must have been ten of us eating at great spaces. We were spray, spaced out. It was like last year at Marionbad. And uh, this is a movie. And uh, I have to keep giving you footnotes so you're not totally confused. And so I'm sitting in this place feeling like some kind of an oaf because uh, I had just dropped in. There was a little sign outside that, uh, that said uh, in German or in uh, Austrian, really, just said uh, restaurant. And so I went in. I was hungry. And I found myself in this thing. These ladies all looked, and I could see that nobody spoke any known language. They spoke some kind of, well, apparently some kind of a, of a uh, barbaric version of a romantic gypsy language. And uh, the guy starts to play a, a, a peculiar kind of march. It sounds a little bit like some kind of funeral march. And uh, the waiter comes over, and he says uh, something in... Uh, in German, and I tried to talk to him in English. I said, uh, may I see the menu? And he says, uh, yeah, yeah, das ist menu. And he brings me the menu, grudgingly, as if I had intruded into this secret rite that was about to, to uh, begin. And so I looked at the menu, and it's completely, uh, completely, well, it wasn't really just German. It was also in a strange kind of script, because I can get my way through German all right. Uh, especially in the eating department, but this was uh, it was written out in purple ink, and uh, yes, um, that's one of my basic uh, advices to you: stay away from restaurants that write out their menus in purple ink in longhand. You're going to get shucked like a ear of corn, friend. They'll peel you and <laughs> leave you off to dry. So uh, I looked down this this menu and uh, I couldn't really recognize anything, and I realized that he wasn't about to tell me what any of this stuff was. And so without the, without any, you know, you've got to plunge in. You've got to eat something. And I knew that, it, that no matter what I ordered, it was something to eat, see? So I pointed to this. His eyebrows raised. I says, uh, das ist, uh, ja, uh, this, yeah, yeah. And he says, ah, jawohl, jawohl. And I could see his eyes sort of glimmer. It's the first time anybody's ordered turtle heads in a long time, you know. And so uh, uh, <laughs> he, goes, he goes scuttling off. And I see a couple of waiters in the corner talking and looking over in my direction. Incidentally, uh, one of my favorite writers of all time is a guy, a late writer who died a few years ago named Ludwig Bemelmans, who wrote about this kind of world. He wrote a great series, particularly a book called Hotel Splendide, which is of this European strange world. It's the kind of world you can imagine an infinite number of greater garbos have come for their parsley salad. And, uh, and sit mysteriously brooding upon a, a spectacular past with a countess and a, and a Romanian nobleman of uncertain lineage. And so I sat in this place and I waited for him to bring it to me. And he brought me this couple of, couple of dishes that were covered with, with uh, silver covers. And he had a towel over his, his arm. And he very, with a big sweep, he goes, ah, yeah, and he takes the tops off, and he puts it down, and here's this strange-looking stuff which uh, had a curious milky quality to it. It had a kind of a white, milky sauce, and it was lukewarm. It wasn't hot. It wasn't cold. It was oddly lukewarm, apparently, which is exactly the way you should have turtle eggs or turtle heads or 
or a gopher livers or whatever it was that I was eating. And so I start to eat this thing. And, uh, and uh, I, I, was, I knew, of course, immediately that I was in the presence of an alien society. This was not the kind of thing that people would eat. These are people that are vaguely preserved from an ancient age. And, uh, yes, you know that there are people who are still eating, living, breathing, and dying the way people did, say, 500 years ago in certain parts of the world. And food changes. You know, food uh, and, and taste in food has changed drastically over the centuries. If you've ever read the menu of, uh, say, Henry VIII, you'd be amazed at the, at the stuff these people ate. I mean, the kind of things they would eat. They would eat things like a boiled pigeon's feet. Uh, yeah, that, that kind of stuff. Dog's liver. Uh, you know, strange things which we don't even think in terms of eating. They would eat, uh, like, uh, you know, pine cone souffle. And, uh, and so here I am living in that scene. I'm eating something that I know has the taste of, of something that Anne Boleyn would have recognized or Count Dracula would have had for dinner. And so, <laughs> I mean, when he wasn't sucking blood. So uh, I'm knocking down this stuff, and the music is playing, and it's beginning to snow outside. They had leaded windows on top of it, genuine leaded windows. And uh, there was not a tourist in 400 million miles at this time of the year in Innsbruck. Nothing there, just the people. And the, the ancient countesses have come down out of the hills to spend uh, their few brief moments in the light. Uh, when the uh, crass tourists had gone, and here they were in this hotel, and, and a man was sitting, one man in the place, and he was sitting about nine tables off with this tall, thin lady who had a face like a hatchet. And uh, he, he must have been nine feet tall, this man, and he, he was actually wearing, and I never thought I would, you know, actually see this, but he was wearing one of these ribbons that went down over the chest, you know, the red ribbons, the order of uh, St. Francis II, or some uh, strange order like that that is given to the Romanian cavalrymen for the last charge at Bratislava. And uh, he's wearing this thing, and he's got snow-white hair. If you can imagine, a snow-white crew-cut, closely cropped white hair. And uh, he is drinking wine. And here I am in the middle of this, me, you know, fresh out of Nedix. Uh, fresh out of Zumzum uh, is about the exotic world for me, and so I'm sitting there uh, trying to eat this stuff and trying to keep a, you know, keep from showing my emotions, which were rather strong at the time. There was one familiar quality to this dish I was eating. Uh, at one time, when I was in sixth grade, I went on a paste-eating binge. Uh, I used to eat this white library paste. Do you ever do that? And uh, and this had a very this was a little bit like LePage. Uh, there are two or three types of uh, uh, brands of, uh, of uh, paste, and LePage happens to be one of my favorite. It has a certain piquant sauciness, uh, uh, a rather uh, brash freshness to it. Uh, like uh, There are other more classical uh, brands of, uh, of uh, library paste, but I happen to go for the LePage. And, uh, and this had a little quality that I'm sitting there eating this stuff, and and uh, the second thing I had ordered, I, I had pointed two things on the menu, figuring that I'm going to make it both ways. You see, if, if one of them makes me sick, I can at least deal with the other one. It arrived, and it was on fire. Whatever it was, I ordered something off flambeau, and it was burning away. <laughs> and everybody looked, and, and apparently I'd ordered the, the local ritualistic feast that is uh, eaten only on the day of Michaelmas. And uh, 
So, uh, nevertheless, I, I bludgeoned my way through it, and finally I got up to leave, and I, I paid them in the strange local currency, which looks exactly like the kind of stuff that Count Dracula would have used, and has names like that, like Kopek and Zlotnik. And so I'm paying off, and the peasants are dancing in the streets when I go out there. There's always townsmen and peasants in places like that. They really exist, little peaked hats. And they scurry around and carry shopping bags full of bones and stuff. And so I, I got into my car and <laughs> I took off. And uh, I went, this is one of the strangest travel show you've ever heard. And you know, the, one of the things that most people don't know about uh, or never talk about, I never see it mentioned much, is the curious kind of loneliness that besets a traveler. It is a very special kind of loneliness. Uh, Marco Polo talked about it. And uh, it's a curious type. It's, uh, and that's just what makes me believe that ultimately no genuine peace is ever going to come to man because cause we are what we are. And uh, we are a herd creature. And once we're among the other herds, we feel out of place. And incidentally, the other herd feels vaguely resentful of you. And always this way. Tourists have always been resented by the local people, no matter where they are. Before we do anything else, let's get, we got a couple of things we got to do here. If you're uh, going to be in town, there's going to be a big bash out at uh, Central Park, and this is a public service type thing. It's going to be on the mall in Central Park, and I'm going to be part of a big show there. I'm going to emcee it and run around and yell and holler. A comics festival. You know, it's the first public thing I've ever seen where guys who draw all the great comics, you know, a lot of the great comics, are going to be on hand right there, you know, and they're going to draw and do all the stuff. You know, guys that draw things like, uh, well, let's see, uh, Little Orphan Annie. The guy that draws Little Orphan Annie is going to be there. So you can yell at him. Uh, people, the, the, the chick that draws Brenda Starr. <laughs> anyway, the whole the whole big thing is, is called a Comics Festival, and I've been looking forward for months to this thing. And it's free, absolutely free. It's one of those big happenings in the park. And there are going to be three shows. It's on the mall. Central Park Mall. One of them is at 1.45. The next show is at 3. And the last one is at 4.15. That's Sunday. And, of course, if, if it rains, they'll have to do something else. I don't know what they'll do. But, uh, nevertheless, it looks like it's going to go off great, and we're all looking forward to it. And there's going to be a lot of wild, interesting people. And the guy that draws Joe Palooka is going to be on hand. You know, you draw a couple of square-jawed guys for you there. And let's see some of the other ones. Uh, the guy that draws Dondi. Uh, the guy that draws Beetle Bailey. <laughs> they're all, they're all going to be on hand. So anyway, that's the Comics Festival, Central Park Mall. Again, it's Sunday afternoon, 1.45. That's in p.m., of course, you idiot. 1.45, 3 p.m., and 4.15. Right? And uh, so I'm driving out through the town, and, and it was beginning to snow. And... It was snowing kind of hard, big white flakes coming down, and I couldn't really see the mountains. The mountains are, are just brooding over you. In Innsbruck, uh, this town has been dropped into the middle of this great uh, craggy mountains. These are real mountains. This is great skiing country in that, but that was all over, and this was not the scene now. This was not skiing. It's like if you can imagine going to Jones Beach in the middle of January. It's definitely off-season. And, it, and it's reverted to its own nature, which is, which is uh, genuinely dangerous. And so I get in this car, and, oh, is it getting cold? And the temperature was dropping. And I, I knew I had to get to this town. I was on my way to Munich, which by real automobile is about three miles. 
but by this roller skate that I'm driving, it's a, you know, who knows? I, I should have said three. Did I say three miles? I meant three hours. It's about three hours from Innsbruck to Munich by genuine car. But by uh, this thing that I was driving, God knows how long, I had to get out every once in a while and wind up the rubber band in it, you know, and it, and it was a little tiny thing. And so the wind is blowing. You know, the, the Germans have specialized. They did after the war. They specialized in making odd little automobiles, like the Messerschmitt. You ever seen the Messerschmitt, the little three-wheel car that's built just like a Messerschmitt? has a little plexiglass bubble. It's got about a two-and-a-half-horsepower engine in the back end there, and it's three wheels. The Lloyd, another strange little car, the Gogomobile, and a few others of that type. So I'm driving along in this little car going up, and you could feel the temperature changing as you went up into the mountains, and it's getting icy cold. Gee, I'm, I'm really freezing. This has got a heater that couldn't have kept a hummingbird warm, and a little tiny heater there going away, and gasoline is pouring in from the back of it somewhere. I could smell the fumes, and the mountain is rising up straight on either side of me like, like a giant black cliffs, and it is really getting dark now. And by the time I, I was out of Innsbruck, about two, maybe three hours, it is so black. I mean so black. And when you get into the middle of the black forest in the mountains, I mean there's not a light. I mean it is black. The, the moon can't even get down into that. And, and you have this feeling that you are now tasting hell. And the cars were, you know, putting along there. And, and the one moment happened to me. That, uh, that kind of made up and pointed up and, and uh, even created another layer of loneliness. As I'm driving, nothing but blackness around me, the feeling that this road is endless and I'll never, that actually I've died and I'm in some terrible, you know, I'm paying now for my sins and, and uh, blackness is coming at me and my little, two little yellow light bulbs are, are struggling, you know, like two little candles. And I can see about three, maybe four feet ahead of the car, this dim yellow light, when suddenly I had just gone around a, uh, a pass, like a big bend. Now, I don't see the sides. I, don't see, I know that there are sheer drop-offs, cliffs on either side of me, but uh, I'm just driving, saying, and uh, trying to stay right on this road. When I suddenly see uh, in my rear-view mirror, which was about the size of a quarter, I see in the river a sudden flash of light, and I see coming around this bend back of me, I see these two headlights, and underneath it, this is a typical European sight, under the two headlights are two bright amber fog lights. They go for that kind of stuff in Europe, you know, fog lights, amber lights, green lights, and stuff all over their cars. And I see these two things, and they came on me so fast, I thought, this is it, he's going to get me. I mean, he really came up. He was coming up like hell-bent for election, you know, it was like... Uh, being buzzed by a zero or something, see? And he goes, and, and all of a sudden I see the light swerve because he spotted me. I had, a, I had a little taillight behind in the back of his car that was a, really it was a ridiculous taillight. It was about the size of a tiny love bead. And uh, it, it, it shed a little wee flickering yellow light. And uh, he came whipping up to me, and I saw him all of a sudden catch. And I, I was ready, you know. I figured, well, this is it, you know. I'm going to get eaten up by a Ferrari. That's the end of me, see? Well, he, he saw me at the last instant, and I saw the light swerve, and he just, just went right around on the inside of me. He just cut inside, and he accelerated. He goes, and he's gone into the darkness. And I caught a fleeting glimpse. It was a launcher. A fleeting glimpse 
this flying blonde hair, this fantastic chick, and away they go. You know, it's a real European scene. Blackness. I mean, obviously, some some uh, decadent film star is on her way to Munich with a with a decadent set designer for an unbelievable weekend among the gnomes, and off they go. And I am once again plunged into stygian blackness. Now I hope this isn't boring you, but. Uh, uh, when I think of Count Dracula, I, I, this, this all comes back to me. And the, 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 we started to go uphill. When I say we, me and this crummy little car, we're struggling uphill, and the car is barely making it. And, and I figure, what am I going to do if I'm, you know, if this thing poops out on me? I, I, I'm, you know, never. I'll never get out of here. And, and who knows what's in those weeds, in those woods. There's no weeds. It's just black woods all around me. The, the black forest is about 500-foot-high trees. And incidentally, this forest, in case you're curious, is a virgin forest. It's, it goes back to the Dark Ages and is protected. And uh, here are these trees, 200, 500, like, they look like a 500 feet high. You just see these great trunks and blacknesses. And believe me, at that point, I am genuinely seeing elves. I can see gnomes. And so I, I, I make it up over a hill, and I'm now on the straight. And I pass a little tiny sign that's buried among the rocks. My little lights picked it up. And it tells me that I am approaching Mittenwald, which is middle of the forest. And uh, Mittenwald. And it says two kilometers, two km. Well, I'm going to be in a town anyway. When all of a sudden it happened, there's nothing. I see in the headlights... I see two eyes, tremendous eyes, directly ahead of me. I mean, they, I, they were red. I mean, they were just glowing out of the darkness. Well, I, they were directly ahead of me. Whatever it was, I'm going to hit. And they were huge eyes. Well, I stop, which wasn't much of a trick with this car. You know, just stick your foot out and drag it a little bit. And I stop. And these two eyes are looking at me. And there I am in the middle of the black forest. The shades of Dracula, all of it hanging over me. And I see this eye, these big ones, big, big eyes. Just sort of hanging about, look like 20 feet off the ground. It starts to move. Whatever it was, was moving a little to the left. And I'm sitting scrunched down in the car, and I'm figuring, should I put this damn thing in reverse, try to get out of here? Putting this thing in reverse is ridiculous, you know. Nothing's going to happen. So I'm just sitting... And then I began to see it, the gloom, standing right in the middle of the road, not more than seven or eight feet ahead of me, is the biggest, most evil, sinister, the, well, there's no animal, we don't have an animal quite like it in America. Have you ever heard of a, of a red, well, it's not a reindeer, a stag, have you ever heard of the, of, of, the, uh, of the alpine stag, the giant Tyrolean stag? Here is this immense animal with a set of antlers that must have been 40 feet across. And his eyes were picking up the light from my two little yellow headlights. And it was a gigantic red stag. And he's just standing there looking at me. And there we were. He must have gone a good half ton tremendous animal and he is red they are red you can see the, the coat on him is a dark sable red huge animal and we just looked at each other for about 
two minutes, and I'm just sitting there sweating. Now what? I can just see the headlines back home. Shepherd gored by mad red stag in black forest. Lost. The hell, this is the way to go, you know? And with that, the stag slowly turns, just kind of does a slow circling cartwheel, and now he is broadside to me. I've never seen an animal in my life like this. Tremendous. He went from one side of the road to the other. And then he turned all the way, and now his rear end is facing me, and he had the rear end, believe me, of a Sherman tank. And he slowly starts to trot down the middle of this cobblestone road. He's trotting away. Well, I put the car in gear, and I followed him. It's the only thing I could do, either that or sit in the darkness like a fool. And I wasn't going to, you know, try to go around them. I mean, he could have picked this car with one flick of his horn. I'd have been 17,000 miles down the gorge. So I drove right behind him, and he just walked. I could hear his... He had hoofs. I could hear the hoofs going cluck, 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 cluck. He just started trotting. Cluck, cluck. What a powerful animal. He looked like a... Like, if you can imagine a moose that's taken to wine drinking. He's changed a bit. And he's going cluck, 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 cluck. And for a good half mile, I follow this enormous animal. And then suddenly, without any warning... In fact, he did it... He did it like magic. It's just an amazing thing. I've never seen any animal do this. He disappeared. He's gone. Just gone. He was right in my headlights. One minute and the next minute, he's gone. He's in the black forest somewhere. I hope. Just gone. Then I really got scared. <laughs> he's going to come out, you know. And I, 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 I stepped on the gas. I'm, I throw this thing in a second. And I start to go, just start to pick up power when suddenly I'm in the middle of Mittenbach. This little tiny place that looks like it's made of uh, ancient Germanic lanterns. And you could see little glowing lights and leaded windows and a church, a curious little square. And it's about one o'clock in the morning. And believe me, towns in the Tyrol are shut up at one o'clock in the morning. There is nothing. When I got out of the car, I was so cold, and I walked down the middle of the street. You could hear your footsteps, and my footsteps are echoing from one end of the town to the other. And I had this sense, you know, that behind the windows there were Santa's helpers somewhere, and they were making gingerbread men. And someplace in the middle distance was the evil witch who was putting people into ovens. And that the, the, the uh, what's his name, uh, the, the bearded Rumpelstiltskin, is preparing another outrage against mankind. And Bluebeard is somewhere off in, in that, that, that house way up there in the hill. And it was at that point that I began to suspect that maybe there was a Dracula. Maybe there is a Dracula. There's a lot of things in this world, friend, that you haven't seen yet. I'm convinced of it because I know damn well there's a lot of things I haven't seen yet. And I can hear them hoofbeats. Was it the devil? Was it an actual animal? God knows.